everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm joined by Terry Fakes. We are doing our last book overview. As we mentioned in our first Timothy podcast two weeks ago, uh, we had a very diligent listener send us a list of the links, which I think we're going to publish at some point, because if you're listening on Apple or Spotify, you might have noticed that those feeds only keep about 125 episodes. And so some of our older episodes from two years ago have now rolled off the end of the uh, the line on those podcast apps. But on our Podbean account, which I don't know that anybody listens to uh, podcasts on Podbean regularly, <clears throat> we have all of our episodes. And so we can give you the links to everything we've ever done. And uh, you can see them that way. So if you're looking for one and you can't find it and you know it's got to be out there, uh, check our Podbean channel. Just search So We Speak Podbean. And then I think in the coming weeks, we're going to put out a post that has links to all the podcasts so that if you Great can't idea. find one, you'll have a place to go and, and get those. But uh, Esther slipped through the cracks. I think we did record it at one point, but uh, we'll make the admission that we lost it. So uh, that's actually kind of appropriate. <laughs> if you listen to the podcast that I did with John Mead, we just talked briefly about the Old Testament canon and that Esther was one of the difficult books in the Old Testament canon for two reasons. It, it is distinguished for these two reasons. It's the only book in the Bible where God is not mentioned. And you'll see in different manuscripts and updates and targums and translations that people have added God into the book of Esther. And then mm -hmm. the second thing is, along with Daniel, it's the only book set completely outside of the promised land. And unlike Daniel, the characters don't even show any interest in wanting to be back in the promised land. So it is a very exactly. strange book. Right. It's a very late book in the Old Testament. It's post-exile. We're going to talk a little bit about the historical situation. Um, and because of that, it was one that people argued about in the canon. Uh, we don't have any canonical doubts about it, but it did slip through the cracks for us. Exactly. Yeah, the, the things you mentioned make this an absolutely unique book. And but it's important for a lot of reasons. It adds another dimension to God's what I call God's providential care for his people. I think you're actually going to be encouraged by the message of this book. So as we get into it, uh, it maybe the best way is to frame the time frame of what's when is this book set. So here's a really short version of Jewish history. You may remember that. Uh, in 586 BC, so almost 600 years before Christ, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, modern day Iraq, he invaded. And one of the things they did was they took most of the Jews out of the area of Jerusalem and all the area around that, and they deported them and they settled them up in Babylon, modern day Iraq, as I said. And so most of the Jews were up there. Well, the Jews have children and continue their time. And in 539 BC, so think about 47 years later, and the Persians, think Iran, modern day Iran, conquer the Babylonians. Well, Daniel was there for this whole time period. And as Cole said, the book of Daniel is written from Babylon and when the Persians conquer it. So that's about 539. So now the Persians are in control of the world. And they allow many of the Jews, in fact, as many as the Jews that want to, to go back to Jerusalem. 
And so many groups did. And that's what the book, by the way, of Nehemiah and Ezra are about, is they are also talking about going back to the promised land, back to Israel. This book, Esther, is set in Persia, so they didn't go back. And so these are Jews who are living in the Persian Empire up in modern-day Iran and Iraq area. And the time period is during the reign of the Persian king Xerxes. So as this book opens, it says, Now in the days of Ahasuerus, which is another name for Xerxes. So when is this? Xerxes reigned from 486 to 465 B.C. So in the Persian era, there are Jews back in the promised land, but these Jews have stayed and are living here. You probably know Xerxes most famously because he, completely irrelevant to the Bible and the Jews, he is the Persian king that invaded Greece and tried to conquer Greece. And he is the king of the movie 300 and of that event where 300 Spartans were able to slow down the Persian army. So uh, this these people are living in Persia during the time of that history. Yeah, and that history comes into play in this book because <clears throat> there's a lot going on at the beginning of this orienting the reader. Some of it is history that we just don't, we're not as familiar with. But Xerxes' campaigns don't go well, which is why he comes back to be comforted by his harem and his queen. And then when things don't go well with Vashti, he's really upset. And so there's a historical element here that would have made sense to people in this time period. And shortly after, they would have realized, oh, this was in the waning period of Xerxes' power during his reign. Uh, the other exactly. thing that's kind of interesting to a person who's reading this as a Jew and this was pointed out to me for the first time in Mike Cosper's book, Faith Among the Faithless. Uh, now, of course, Mike Cosper is known for the podcast Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. But before he was doing that, he was uh, he wrote a great book on the book of Esther called Faith Among the Faithless. And in it, he points out that what a, what a Jew would have recognized when they read this story is the main characters are all in some way or another compromised. These are not your faithful Jews. This is not a story like Daniel right. and his three friends who abstained from the king's table because they felt that God had told them to eat vegetables. These are not the kinds of people that refuse to be thrown in the lion's den uh, because they don't want to bow down uh, or because they want to pray or the fiery furnace because they don't want to bow down. These are people who have learned to go along, get along in the Persian Empire. Not only are they in the capital, their names, and this would have been almost funny uh, that you would have good characters in a Jewish story whose names are Mordecai and Esther. Mordecai now is a popular Jewish name because of what happens to Mordecai, but it is a name that is, is from the god Marduk, which is a Persian god. So you have this Jew, quote-unquote Jew, whose name is essentially servant of Marduk. Not a very yeah. good Jew. Uh, not a very faithful Jew. Same thing with Esther. Esther's name is a, a little bit of a change on the goddess Astrid. And so you you hear in her name that she is probably serving or at least giving tribute to another god. So these mm -hmm. characters are introduced in a, in a way that uh, 
sets the scene for what is God going to be able to do through these people? And these are not the Jews that went back with Ezra and Nehemiah. They're not the ones that want to be in the promised land. They're the ones who settled down in the exile and thought life is not that bad in Persia. Uh, the other thing is that the book of Esther is told almost like, and I hate to use this phrase because it, it brings some implications in that we don't mean, but it's written in a style that almost reads like a fairy tale. Now, that doesn't mean that we mm -hmm. think it's not true. We think that this book is true and historically accurate. Like the book of Jonah, though, it it reads like a storybook story. And mm -hmm. um, in some ways, we need to pay attention to that to get what's going on in the story. I'll give you another example. When Haman is introduced, Haman is a descendant of Agag. He's an Agagite. And this would have been one of those things that you're like, let's conceive of a villain. Okay, who would be a great villain for the people of Israel in the land of Persia? Well, we don't want it to be a Persian. Let's get let's get a little more insidious than that. Let's make him an, an Amalekite from the land of Canaan when the Israelites were originally supposed to go in and conquer the land. Saul was supposed to put to death all the Amalekites, but he spared the king Agag. In this is in the book of, of First Samuel. So he spares the king Agag, and they are a constant thorn in the side of the Jews all the way after that in the promised land. So, so now, literally hundreds and hundreds of years later, because they didn't get rid of Agag, now you have a descendant of Agag, Haman, the Agagite, who has worked his way up as well in Persia, and he is going to be a thorn in the side of Mordecai. Now, Mordecai, we know something else about him that's interesting. Mordecai is from the tribe of Benjamin. In fact, he at some point has shared relatives with King Saul. He's not a descendant of Saul. He's at some point was a cousin maybe of Saul's that has come down. But he's he's from this same tribe, from this same group. So you have a descendant of Saul and a descendant of Agag in Persia, squaring off against each right. other. That's what I mean by you have to see that this is, if it weren't true, it would be too good to be true, that this is what's happening. Right. Uh, but it's 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 the uh, truth is stranger than fiction phenomenon in this Bible story. So the stage gets set in the opening chapters uh, by the character introductions, by the setting. Something really weird is going on in this story. And then we're into the drama. Exactly. And the book opens, as you said, with uh, the Jews living there and Xerxes is not having, this is not the good part of his reign. He has lost respect in the world. He's failed to conquer Greece. It was a humiliating defeat by a weaker enemy. He comes back to lick his wounds. He's drinking pretty heavily. He wants everybody to tell him how great he is. And he sends for his queen, Vashti, when he's drunk, to come out and brag and say, look at my beautiful queen. And she says, I'm having nothing to do with this. And so she gets deposed as the queen. And so then they decide, well, we've got to find a new queen. We're going to round up all the good-looking girls in the kingdom. And it turns out one of these Jewish girls named Esther is one of those girls that comes uh, to before 
Xerxes. Yeah, th- this part of the story is also intriguing in one way and sad in another. It's intriguing in that it is so Xerxes is portrayed as so overblown in this story, which probably has some historical accuracy. He's right. quick-tempered, he's moody, but, but at the same time he has his eunuchs, he has his his palace uh, officials take these women and spend an entire year on their beauty and skincare routine before they come in to the king, which I say that that's kind of the funny part. You're like, this is just all so overdone. And then the sad part of it, really the terrible part of it, and this is a reality in the ancient world, is you have commentators pointing out, well, once once these women had been taken into the royal harem, their lives were forfeit. In some ways, this is tantamount to right. sex trafficking, sex slavery, because right. once they had been with the king, they would never be with anyone else. And if the king didn't like them, they would live out their days in the palace. So that brings us to the first piece of the gravity of this story. There's on one level, some very superficial, funny, ironic elements, which we'll talk about later. But at the same time, this story gets to a very deep life and death level very quickly. Mm -hmm. And this this is the element of real life that runs through this story of... On the surface, there are things going on, and then way deep down in the plot, there are things that you start to notice the more you come back to the story of, wow, Esther's life was hanging on a thread. Uh, this this was really serious. This happened several times to her. Her life is hanging in the balance, and uh, you have to appreciate both of those dynamics that are going on in this story. So the king chooses Esther to be his queen, and then... Mordecai comes back into play. So so Mordecai is the adoptive father of Esther, who is somehow related to him, either his niece or his cousin or something. She's an orphan that Mm -hmm. that he's raising. So they're very tight. And he is effectively serving as an advisor for her and a guide. And then we're introduced to Haman. And again, I've already talked about Haman's lineage. But uh, Haman is plotting against the Jews. You should read this in a similar way to the other uh, political leaders and their plots against Daniel. People that just right. they don't like the Jews. They don't like people who have come from somewhere else. They don't like people who maybe are worshiping other gods, although we don't get a huge sense that Mordecai is a faithful Jew. A lot of this runs through this exilic time period of the Jews being a special target for people for persecution. And so Haman is going to develop a couple of different plots to get at the Jews. And Esther is then going to be put on the spot. And you get the very famous line from Esther in chapter four. Uh, She says, when she's talking about going into the fast, she says, I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And uh, we get that if this is her time, it is for such a time as this, that she has been put in that position to go in and talk to the king. You know, it's similar to me, to Nehemiah. And remember, now, Nehemiah is going to happen. That book happened also like this. It actually happened with another Persian king, Artaxerxes, who lived, oh, about 40 years later, maybe a little less than that. And Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king, if you remember that book. And he prays to God, give me favor with this man, because by showing displeasure and asking the king for a favor to go back and help his fellow Jews, he's risking his life. 
And Esther is doing the same thing. She's going to help the Jewish people because by this time, Haman went to Xerxes. He's a drinking buddy of Xerxes and got him to issue an edict that said on such a day, a year from now, all the Jews will be annihilated. In, and it, the letters went out to every city in the kingdom. And so Mordecai says, Esther, you have to help. And she says, it's against the law for me to actually go speak to the king. He will kill me. And that's what you're quoting there. Like Nehemiah, for the sake of their countrymen, she goes to risk her life. And then uh, the thing that Mordecai says is, who knows, perhaps you're here for such a time as this. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me like that little theme runs through not just Jewish history, but Christian history as well, is that God puts people, sometimes really unlikely people, like these people that you mentioned, in place to accomplish his purposes for such a time as this. And that's where Esther is positioned. So Esther goes in, she speaks to the king, uh, we're going to follow one thread of the story, and then we're going to come back to some of the other things that happened. But she goes into the king. She tells him effectively what's happened. The king is upset about this. And because of the way the Persian laws work, they're not able really to undo it. But in the end, they're able to send out another decree to enable the Jews to fight for themselves on this day, and the Jews are able to survive. So that, that's kind of the main arc of the story. But what happens in the middle is the most interesting part of it. Haman continues to scheme after this edict to try and get rid of Esther and Mordecai and the Jews. And this is where the layers of irony begin in this story. One of the things that's interesting about Esther is the whole book is arranged as a chiasm. And we've talked about this before. A chiasm is the word for X is where it comes from. And it's a story that has parallels at the beginning and the end and in the intervening sections. It's almost like opening parentheses and then shutting parentheses. However many ones you open, then you have to have a corresponding shutting parenthesis. And when you have something that's a chiasm, the most important thing in the chiasm is what happens in the very middle. So in the middle of this book is chapter six, verse one. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Mordecai had uncovered a plot before this, and he had never been honored for it. And the hinge point in the book, the thing that begins to unravel, so on the way up to chapter 6, Haman's schemes are working perfectly. And on the way down from chapter 6, all of Haman's schemes get undone. And this is the Mm -hmm. point where the story changes. This one event, this happenstance event that the king can't sleep, of course, we know it's God in the background. The fact that he decides to have this book read, the fact that he remembers Mordecai and then seeks to honor him is the point that makes the rest of the book make sense. So what happens after this is really funny and really rich. After he wakes up, he... The king said, what honor has been bestowed on Mordecai? And the king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who who is in the court? Now, 
Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared. So before this, he's already built the gallows. He's building these gallows that are really high at his house that he wants to hang Mordecai on. And uh, because because Mordecai has disrespected him. And he has just it just so happens that he had come in that morning to speak with the king about hanging Mordecai. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And he says, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn and the horse that the king has ridden and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king says to Haman, Hurry, take these robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman takes the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai. And led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, <laughs> Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. That is a hilarious turn of events, an ironic turn of events that Haman honors Mordecai by his own prescription. And we're going to see this again later that Haman, actually, at the end of the story, is hanged on his own gallows where he was going to hang Mordecai. It, it, this right. this book is just rich with this kind of humor and irony, and uh, there's actually G.K. Beale has written a great little book on the irony in Scripture that the devil, by thinking that having Christ crucified was going to foil God's plan, actually it was that very same cross that Christ died on that sets us free. There's all kinds of ironic themes in Scripture. But Esther is the book where you see it played out most prominently. And you can't help but laugh reading chapter six of what happens. Haman, right. who who would the king want to honor more than me? And then he has to go and do that to Mordecai, who he had been coming to tell the king he was ready to hang on his gallows. Exactly. And then it gets worse, as you would expect, because Haman goes home and he's fuming. And so uh, it turns out, that Queen Esther, who has the favor of the king, king says, what can I do for you? And she says, basically, uh, there was someone who was going to destroy my whole people and would have not just sold us as slaves, but would have killed us all. And the king says, who is he and where is he and who has dared to do this? And Esther said, well, actually, it's Haman. And right. so Haman's situation gets worse and worse and worse to the point where uh, Haman is the one who is hanged on the gallows and the Jews are saved. Yeah, it's interesting in this part of the book, you start to see this divine deliverance theme emerging. And I think that probably uh -huh. is the main theme of this book is God is working. And I, I don't think it's I don't think it's coincidental that God is not mentioned in this book. Because in some ways, this is an outwardly godless scenario. Right. But for those who have the eyes of faith, for those who are reading this, who know what God is like, 
who know his character, you can see God working on every page of this story. You can see him in the background. You can see him working uh, through the circumstances of history, through the spirit, through people in their emotions and their personalities and their impulses. And God is weaving his story together to save his people at the end of this book. And, and this is one of the paramount examples in the Bible of the way that God can work through really uh, terrible circumstances and, and places you would not expect to see God provide, but God comes through in the end. Which really gets to one of the great themes. There are a couple of themes in this, but one is that God's providence, God providing for his people, which is as true for us as God's people today as it was for Esther and Mordecai and Nehemiah and Ezra and all the people who were God's people in that covenant and in that era. But the idea that as we look around our world, we see a political situation that isn't ideal and we see bad things happening and unjust things happening. Nevertheless, this kind of story should say that God is working in history, whether you see it or not, to accomplish his purposes. And uh, that's to me is one of the great lessons out of this story is that God is always working for good in and through the imperfect people in history. And it's very mm -hmm. it's a very encouraging story, not just for the Jews, but for us as well. I would say a, a theme that runs through uh, as well as the unlikelihood that God would work through these mm. people. As you mentioned, right. uh, th this is not a situation that you would think God would show up. And, and in fact, that is almost the theme of the exile, is the exile happens because God's people have broken their covenant. And God has warned them right. for hundreds of years, and they are sent out of the promised land. But God promises all along that even after the people are removed, he is still going to be their God. He's going to gather them up and bring them back, which he does. And uh, this story is kind of representative of the whole theme of the exile. You have unfaithful people, people who have forsaken God, but God has never forsaken them. So what's interesting to me is when Esther goes to the king, he's already signed the decree that the Jews are going to be exterminated. But he doesn't know or isn't aware in that moment that Esther is a Jew. So this is actually mm -hmm. the exact opposite of what you see in the book of Daniel. Daniel is targeted because he is a Jew, and people know that he's a Jew because he is praying like a Jew. He is religious like a right. Jew. These people go completely under the radar. They don't, the king has right. no idea that she ethnically is a Jew because she is not even religiously a Jew. <laughs> she's not doing anything right. that would set her apart. And they would say, what's up with her? Oh, well, she's she's a Jew. She's a God-fearing Jew. That does not happen. She has the crisis moment. She decides to trust God. It's a new thing for her. <laughs> but God comes through right. and she saves her people. So one of the things you have to see in this book is the moral ambiguity of the characters and the moral ambiguity of the plot. There are things that are in, that are done in this plot that are not good things that the characters do. These are not perfect characters. Um, you know, right. entering the king's harem is not something that we think is a prescriptive element in this biblical story. Uh, this isn't right. like, you know, the book of Ruth, where certain people accuse Ruth of impropriety with Boaz, we would want to say, I don't think the story reads that way because Ruth is presented as a righteous character and Boaz is as well. Uh, 
if it were Esther and Xerxes in that story, we wouldn't bat an eye at it because we don't expect right. those people to do the right thing. So, so instead, you have a story of morally complex, not righteous people who are living their lives and God gets a hold of them and begins to use them. And that's very true to real life. That is very much the way God uses people. Uh, there are Our lives are morally ambiguous and complex, and God is working through as we live our lives and as other people live their lives, not even knowing that God is directing their steps and directing events until everything comes clear. And, and I'd clarify and say, we're not saying that God approved of all of their behavior. And the beauty of this, for example, he used the Persian king Cyrus in the beginning to as a mechanism to let the Jews go back. And Cyrus was never a godly person. He was never a faithful guy, but God used him. And so the beauty of this story to me is that God isn't endorsing a lot of the things that Esther and Mordecai are doing, but there comes a moment when they have to decide whether to trust God or not. And Esther says, you know what? I'm going to trust God. And to me, that's kind of the gospel in a nutshell, is there comes a time when we place our trust and our faith in God, and God then uses that in a huge way. So I, I think it's just these characters, while they may or may not be great people, they're they're a lot like us. Because a time came, though, when we chose, we trusted, we placed our trust in God, and God then did great things with that. Yeah, the book ends with a memorial to this very point of God's providence through unlikely people, and this is actually something that's still celebrated today. This is uh, in chapter 9. Mordecai gets elevated, by the way. Haman's dead. And so the king says, you know, Mordecai, you should be my advisor, not Haman. And so in chapter 9, verse 24, Mordecai recorded all these things. And that's why, by the way, some people think Mordecai wrote this book. It doesn't say, but this is why some people think, okay, this is what Mordecai wrote down is the story of what God had done. And he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the whole, whole empire. And he said, Keep the 14th day of the month and the 15th day of the month as days on which we were saved from our enemies. And that from that day on, those would be two days of feasting and gladness amongst the Jews. And that is called the Festival of Purim, P-U-R-I-M. And as you said, Cole, that is still a festival celebrated today to remember this. And one of the things that's done on that day is a reading of the book of Esther. Hmm. Yeah, it's a celebration that God, uh, through all kinds of different means, from the beginning of this book to the end, uh, you take Mordecai, who is kind of an unfaithful, not highly elevated character, and then the final chapter, Mordecai is the leader and the powerful person for his people and in the empire. Um, Esther goes from an orphan to the queen, to, in some sense, a savior of her people. Haman goes from powerful enemy of God down into the grave. There are themes in this story of God's provision, his justice, making things right, even through difficult and impure and unfavorable circumstances. 
that gives us a little snapshot into how God works in the world all the time. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.